Dwight David Eisenhower was the supreme Allied commander of all Allied forces in the European theater on June the 6th, 1944. Now, June the 6th, of course, was D-Day, the beginning of the liberation of Europe from Nazi brutality and occupation. And we look back on D-Day and celebrate it because we know that it was the beginning of the end for the Nazis in Europe. But on June the 6th, 1944, success was far from a foregone conclusion. As a matter of fact, Eisenhower even scribbled a note that was to be published in the event that the Allies failed and the invasion was repelled. I think we've got a picture of this note. Here's what Eisenhower wrote in the event this D-Day failed. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Whoa. You want to talk about leadership? You want to talk about owning it? This was, this was a military mission of more than a million men who would be dropped into Europe across the English Channel. A million men, 39 divisions, their machinery, their munitions, all of these things had to work just right. But Eisenhower, Eisenhower said, if it fails, put it on me. Man, how much would we give right now? For a statesman, for a leader like that, anywhere would somebody help me preach, but that's another sermon. I'm not going there right now. That's just who he was. Now, follow me. I know I'm a little bit of a history nerd, and that's okay, but follow me on this one, because we look back at Eisenhower as a military genius, and the, the military campaign ended in absolute allied victory, to be sure, but but Eisenhower's real genius was not necessarily military. As a matter of fact, it may surprise you to know that Eisenhower himself never fired a shot in combat. Isn't that interesting? But he was brilliant in people and in planning. If you look at all of the logistics that had to go into this campaign, not only into the landings of June the 6th, 1944, but then the campaign that followed to supply, to fuel, to medically care for the wounded across that next year of fighting, it was an overwhelming logistical nightmare. Eisenhower's real genius was in the people and in the planning. Now, the liberation of Europe, to be sure, was a noble goal and aspiration. It had to happen. I mean, it's hard to even imagine what our world would be like right now if they had failed. But, but that noble aspiration would have remained only an aspiration if it hadn't been for Eisenhower's incredible, relentless diligence in the details you know, every single aspiration that you have, every calling, every vision or dream that we have for our lives, for, for this world, all of it requires the exact same diligence in the details if it's to become a reality. You see, God has given you, he's given me 
life, which means he has us here on purpose. And if God has us here on purpose, that means he has us here for a purpose. There's a vision and a calling that God wants to manifest in your life, in my life. That's kind of the the, the heartbeat of this series that we kicked off last week for ATX, that collectively we as a church are here for this incredible hometown that we call home, Austin, Texas, that we're here to grow the community of Christ one life at a time. That's our, our true north as a church. And, and along the way, hopefully and prayerfully, we redefine what church means for the city of Austin and beyond That's our collective calling, but the fact is there's also this this personal calling that every single child of God, everyone who is created by God is created for God on purpose with a purpose, that that you're here for a specific reason, and we have the opportunity, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility to figure out what that is, to, to know what it is that we're about and why we're here, and so there is this collective sense of 4ATX, but there's also this personal sense. And we're looking at this through the lens of the biblical historical figure, Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a fascinating guy, as we discovered last week. He was actually an Israelite born into captivity. And the book of Nehemiah that bears his name in the Bible chronicles the events that happened about 450 years before Jesus. He is, a, he is born into captivity. He is serving King Artaxerxes, the, the king of Persia, which is now Iran. And in this capacity as a, as a slave, as a, as a captive, Nehemiah has risen up through the ranks through his capability, through his dependability, and is currently serving as the wine taster to the king. He was the cupbearer, is the official title, which means his job was to make sure the king wasn't about to be poisoned when dinner time rolled around. So the next time you have a bad day at work, just think it could be a lot worse. But this was Nehemiah's job, and it's against that backdrop that Nehemiah receives word that Jerusalem, back, back home, Jerusalem, the, the epicenter of Israel's identity spiritually, Politically, nationally, personally even, Jerusalem lay in ruins. It had been devastated when it had been sacked. And specifically, the walls that provided the security for Jerusalem or any other town of that era, the walls lay in complete rubble. The the gates had been burned. And as we saw last week, this, this stirred something in Nehemiah, his his hometown, the, the homeland of his fathers and his grandfathers, th- there was something inside of him that, that was drawn to that, and he began to pray. And in this incredibly passionate prayer, God spoke something into the life of Nehemiah. God gave Nehemiah a calling. He gave him a, a vision and a dream to, to rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. He said, there's one little problem. Nehemiah is a slave 900 miles away. 900 miles away. He's a slave, and he has this dream from God, this calling to rebuild the city walls. I mean, that is a monster mission. That's a colossal calling that God has placed on the life of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah just begins by praying, and he prays for Jerusalem. He prays 
and he fasts and he, he confesses sin and he, and he prays that God would, would do something. And it's at that point that God speaks into his life and he gives him this vision and this calling. But in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah, there's this incredible pivot point. It's, it's this, this pivot where, where God begins to stir in Nehemiah and he, and he moves the potential to the actual. He, he moves what if to what is. And he says, hey, this, this, is, this is where I'm taking you. This, this is what I've created you for. This is what I've called you to. Now it's time to make it a reality. So if you've got your Bibles, look at Nehemiah chapter number two. Maybe you've got it on your phone. Check out our man Nehemiah and, and this this diligence in the details. Because how many times have you heard it said before, man, the devil's in the details. You've heard that saying before, right? And, and to a certain degree, there, there's an element of truth in that. The details are where it's difficult. But as you study the, the word of God, as you study the work of God across generations and centuries and millennia in this world, you see this relentless overwhelming attention to detail. You see God's diligence in the details, that nothing is left to chance, that that nothing just happens, but that God is always accomplishing his purposes throughout the story of human history. Nehemiah chapter 2, this is where Nehemiah begins this pivot point in the story. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face so sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, There's a lot happening just in these two verses that I think we need to take just a second and kind of excavate on a little bit. Let's just kind of of unpack it, if you will. Now, it's interesting to me that that Nehemiah writes, I had not been sad in the king's presence. Now, this says that it was in the month of Nisan. So this is a full six months after the events of chapter 1 in Nehemiah. So for six months, at least, at least for six months, Nehemiah had continued serving the king. He had continued in his job. He had continued as cupbearer to the king, but he had never been sad in the king's presence. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think over at least six months that Nehemiah would have had a bad day somewhere along the way? I mean, we know that he was grieved to the point of fasting and praying and weeping in chapter one, but King Artaxerxes never knew about it. He had never been sad until this moment. That that tells me that Nehemiah was an awesome employee. It it didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter if his rooster didn't crow on time and wake him up or if, you know, Susa rush hour was just brutal and he was late to the palace. The king had never seen him sad. Nehemiah preserved a professional posture at all times times. This was his job. This was what he was doing. And as such, he always showed up. He he was always ready to go in his role as cupbearer to the king. That's a valuable, valuable lesson. But I also want to show you something that shows you how brilliant 
and wise Nehemiah was. He had never been sad in his presence, but on this day, he showed up sad. On this day, he decided to put his cards on the table. And it's not an accident. It didn't just happen. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. Jesus is saying, be really, really wise. Be discerning. Be cunning, but never be manipulative. Never be false or fake, but always understand how the world operates. I'm sending you out into a battle zone. Be careful. Be shrewd, but always be innocent. Our man Nehemiah, he wasn't manipulating the king. He he wasn't acting fake or phony. He was maintaining that professional posture until it was exactly the right moment. He was so wise and so discerning as he picked his spot. And you know this because of the way Artaxerxes responded. When he saw Nehemiah sad, it was different. He didn't just walk in and go, well, Nehemiah's having another bad day. You ever work with somebody who's always having a bad day? You know, don't raise your hand, if, if, especially if you're sitting next to him. But it, there, there are times, like, I just, you, you, ought to, you ought to enjoy working. You know how many people would love to have a job? And there are a lot of people that would love to have your job. Act like it. Now, when it was time, he picked a spot. And Artaxerxes said, what's wrong? Nehemiah, my man, the cupbearer, the one I rely on to make sure that my cup hasn't been poisoned. And if you're down, this, this is real. This is, this is legit, bruh. What's up? And... And so Nehemiah was ready. He, he, he explained to the king, our people's hometown lies in ruins. How could I not be sad? The land of my fathers is, is destroyed. The walls lie in rubble. Look at how verse 4 opens up. Look at what Artaxerxes says. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Nehemiah, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, it's one of those little bullet prayers. When when the king asks you something, you do not, you do not take a time out and go, I just need to have a word of prayer. You you don't do that. But you can get a bullet prayer out. You can go, Lord, be with me. Here we go. That was the kind of prayer that Nehemiah prayed. Now, remember at the end of verse 2 when he said, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid because when we see the word king, you know, we think of, of England or, you know, current monarchies, kind of the benevolent king or queen, right? Well, Artaxerxes was not benevolent. In this day and age, you have to understand, you have to go back and understand the context. In this day and age, king, this was a brutal time to live, just, just to survive in life was a brutal experience. And kings during this age, if they didn't like your expression, death, just off with your head like like in in Gladiator. You remember that? Thumbs up, thumbs down? This was 450 years before that. 
And Artaxerxes was known as a brutal dictator. So, so Nehemiah knew that when the moment came, this was do or die in every sense of the word. But remember the prayer that we looked at last week that Nehemiah started by, he started by praying for forgiveness from the past, but then he also prayed for favor for the future. And you see that prayer being answered in spades right here in Nehemiah 2, verse 4. And, and Artaxerxes says, what, what are you asking me for? Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. That is a huge, huge ask. I mean, that, that is a great, big request. He is the cupbearer to the king. This is somebody that the king has decided he trusts literally with his life. And Nehemiah says, can I take a vacation? Can, can I just get a little sabbatical? Cruise on back to Jerusalem, J-Town, and, and, and rebuild the walls? Is that cool, king? You see, there are five functional factors that must be in place in order for a vision, for a, for a calling from God to become a reality. Five functional factors. And I'm going to ask you to write these down because we're going to go over these not only today but in the weeks to come. But I think it's also helpful to, to understand these five functional factors in our own lives. If you've got a calling and a, a vision from God for what your life ought to look like, you need these five factors. If, how about in our families? If, you, if you're a mom or a dad, isn't there a, isn't there a vision or a calling for your family? Didn't God give you those kids for a reason? Didn't, didn't he expect you to do something with it? So it's imperative that you have a mission. You have a, a vision or a calling from God for your family. What about if you're, if you're not married, and, you're, and you wanna, but you want to be married one day? Maybe you think, man, I would let God. I, this is, I think this is the vision you have. I just, I'm asking you, God, for, for a woman who has the, the heart and the faith of Mother Teresa. And, and if she looks like Margot Robbie. That's okay, too, God. I just, I'm asking. That's, that's my vision, God. That's my, I think that's my calling from you. Awesome. That's great. But you better be working the plan. You have to be diligent in the details. If you think God's calling for you is to marry somebody with the faith of Mother Teresa and the appearance of Margot Robbie, Godspeed to you, my son. But you best not be dating women who don't love God more than they love you. Women, if you're thinking about marrying a guy who's just like me, it's like Billy Graham never died. And, and this, is, this is the heir apparent in his... his and oh, he is hot. That's great. But if you're dating a loser, if you're dating a guy who doesn't care more about your faith than his own sexual satisfaction, forget it. You are kidding yourself. There are some functional factors that must be 
in place. Now, the first functional factor is why. Why are you going after? Why are you chasing this vision or this calling? Nehemiah said, I, I want to go back home to, to our homeland. The land of our fathers lies in ruins. This matters to me. This is grieving my heart. That, that was something that obviously resonated with Artaxerxes. Nehemiah knew the king. He had paid attention. He was shrewd as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. And, and he knew how to communicate in a way that would resonate. And he, he said, this, this is my why. And, and your why is the most significant spiritual factor of all five functional factors. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it to glorify God and to fulfill his vision for your life? Why? The second functional factor, when? When, when do you need to do this? Nehemiah's like, right now. I, I, if, it's, if it pleases the king, I'm going. Number three, how long? How long will it take you to fulfill this vision or this calling? Now, a lot of times when you start out on a calling or a vision, we... You don't know how long. Nehemiah, however, had done the homework. He had computed how long that 900-mile journey would require, how long the construction project in Jerusalem would take, and then the 900-mile journey back to Susa. He had an answer for the king. He did his homework. How long? How long will I have to do without your services, Nehemiah? He, man, he, he had that answer. The fourth functional factor, how much? How much is it going to cost? The king says, what will you need? And, and Nehemiah had a shopping list for Artaxerxes. He said, well, glad that you asked, king. If you would, I could use some letters that would kind of give me safe passage through some rough territories. Nobody's going to mess with Artaxerxes. Me, they'd, they'd knock off in a heartbeat. But if I have your seal... I got clean shot all the way to J-Town. Number two, Nehemiah said, I'm going to need a letter from you to the keeper of the royal forest because I'm going to need some lumber. I've got this huge construction project. Not only do we have to rebuild the, the, the wooden gates in the wall around Jerusalem, but I've got to have a house when I get there. If, if I'm going to oversee this construction project, I'm going to have to be able to live there for a while. So I need lumber for my house. And if I could get that out of your forest on the way, that'd be awesome. And Artaxerxes said, cheers, done. But Nehemiah did the homework. Jesus tells us, count the cost. So many times, those of us who go by the name of Christian fail to realize the fullness of God's calling and vision in our lives because we don't do the homework. We, we haven't planned out the details. I, I knew a guy years and years ago who lives in another city. And, and, and he and his, he and his wife wanted to start a business. And I was like, man, that, that's exciting. And, and I, I talked to him through the process. This was years and years and years ago. And I said, man, so how's the business? He goes, man, we're, we're just praying. We're just praying. Weeks, months. Have y'all started yet? No, we're just, we're just praying. And listen, I get it. Those that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. 
But those who work in the name of Jesus will also see fruit from their labors. Yes, we pray, but we also plan and prepare. That was the divine paradigm that Nehemiah lived out. He started with prayer, then he planned. Now, I have to tell you, a lot of times my tendency, my drift, if I'm not deliberate, my drift is to plan and then pray. A lot of times I'll see a problem or or something that needs to get fixed or, or Julie tells me about something that maybe we share as a problem in a family or something that's kind of weighing on her. And I'm like, all right, here's what we need to do. Step one, step two, step three. How do you feel about that? You good? Okay, I'm good. I've learned 26 years marriage. She doesn't always want me to fix it. Husbands, how many of you know that? intellectually if she asks you what do you think I should do don't answer <laughs> just just tell her I am so sorry that that really sounds hard and she asks you again what do you think I should do don't answer it's a trap <laughs> she's processing it Julie man she she is a verbal processor she she thinks while she talks. It's, it's a beautiful thing to behold. I don't get it, but I know that it's true, and I'm not trying to change it anymore. And we're, man, but we pray, and then we plan. We pray, and then we plan. Now, Nehemiah's working the plan. Now, Skip down to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. Now, he's just now getting to Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Verses 14 and 15, he just kind of continues this tour around the city walls of Jerusalem. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Nehemiah was brilliant. You know what Nehemiah knew? Nehemiah knew that a vision, particularly in its infancy, when when it's just seeing the light of day, that a vision is vulnerable to vandals. A vision is vulnerable to vandals. Some of you know this. Some of you have maybe shared a vision or a dream or a calling that God's given to you too soon. You've kind of, you're not going to believe this. Look at what God told me. uh, And maybe people close to you, your family's like, really? Maybe maybe it's to to start your own business. Like, we're going to start a business. And your family's like, really? I never saw that for you. But fascinating. And you're kind of like, what are you doing raining on the parade, cuz? Vision is vulnerable 
to vandals, especially in the early, early, early realization of it. Nehemiah still is keeping his cards close to his vest. He's not lying to anybody. He's just not broadcasting. He's not starting a reality TV show and opening up an Instagram account to try and gain a bunch of followers. He's still doing the homework. He's still in the preparation phase. And so he's, he's going around and seeing what this job is really going to take, what it's going to require. Now, next week, we're, we're going to talk about opposition. We're going to talk about vision opposition. Because anytime God gives you an opportunity, somebody's going to bring you some opposition. Every single time. Every time. But just by way of introduction, look, look at what it says in verse 19. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? Are you crazy? You can't rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They've been down for decades. Are you, you're stirring up trouble. You're, you're, you're trying to make yourself a king. You're, you're rebelling against Artaxerxes. I'm telling. That, that's what they were doing. The opposition to the opportunities of God is a constant. You, you have to own that reality. If you're going to cultivate a God-honoring home and family, let's say, you're going to swim upstream. People are going to look at you like you have three heads when you say you're not traveling this weekend for the soccer tournament. I thought you loved your children. No, it's okay. It's okay. What? Are, are you telling me you don't check your children's grades every week online? You could lose your parenting card. No. They're in middle school. I've done seventh grade. I'm not doing it again, bruh. Wait a minute. You... You don't let your middle school daughter be snotty to her mother? You, you expect them to be respectful? Yeah, I'm just crazy that way. Sorry, not sorry. You're swimming against the culture, and it's worth it. Every single time. That's just one example. You're going to be a God-honoring businesswoman? You're going, to, you're going to build a book of business on integrity and doing what you said you would do? You're not going to fudge the numbers at the end of the quarter? Yeah, that's right. That's the vision, that's the calling that I have received from God, and I'm not sacrificing it. I'm not compromising that. Nehemiah knew this. That's why he kept it close to the vest at first. Some of you are kind of freaking out right now. I, I know you are. Because I told you there were five functional factors and I only gave you four. And you're looking at your watch and you're going, he better come through with number five or we're going to have words at the door after the service. 
I know, that's okay. That's great. God, God gave you that personality. <laughs> now, I told you that number one, the why is the most important spiritual functional factor. Number five is the most important practical functional factor. Number five is who. Who are you going to do this with? Who are you going to chase a God-given goal with? Who are you going to go down and manage the minutia with? Who are you going to parse the particulars? Who are you going to focus on the fundamentals with? Who are you going to surround yourself with will be the greatest practical determinant of whether or not you fulfill God's calling and vision for your life. It's who. It's who. Who do you surround yourself with? We are absolutely the sum of the five people we spend the most time with. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be people who encourage you to, to love God better today than you did yesterday? Is it going to be people who who are for your marriage, who are going to tell you to fight for that marriage when, when you feel like throwing in the towel? Is it going to be people who, who encourage you to live your life as a student, fulfilling the calling that God's got on your life? Well, I'm, man, I'm 16, but yeah, you're 16. You can get started early. You don't have to make the same mistakes that I made or your, your parents made or, or other generations. Well, you have to make your own mistakes. No, you don't. That's called stupid. If you know it's a mistake and then you do it, you're a smart person. But that's a dumb thing to do. Who? The opening verses of chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. That means they, they set it apart for divine purposes. They consecrated it. And set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hasanah. They laid the beam, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and its bars. The rest of chapter 3 is basically just a roll call of the duty roster of everybody who contributed to the construction of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah drilled down into the details diligently in order to see this monster mission made manifest, in order to see it become a reality, to move from the potential to the actual. Nehemiah was Israel's Eisenhower. Now, it's funny. It's funny that we would use Eisenhower... As a, as a paradigm of, of planning. And he was, to be sure, but he's also known for another quote that I, I think is really interesting. Eisenhower wrote this, In preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. What Eisenhower was saying is that the enemy gets a vote. You, you, you have to have a plan, but understand that the plan will change. It will morph. It will evolve. The great 20th century philosopher Mike Tyson said it this way. He said, everybody has a plan. 
until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> See, you, you can have a plan when you step in the ring, but whoa, that first punch told me he was going to dance, coach. You have a plan. You, you can only audible off of a called play. You have to have a plan to manifest a monster mission from God. And, and, and things will happen outside of our control. The, the enemy gets a vote. But when, when the enemy votes on your plan or your mission, your calling from God, when that happens, you come back to what's real, you come back to what's true, you come back to this profound promise from the heart of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I'm not going to put it on the screen because I want you to just think about the words. I want you to let the words just kind of wash over you. For God... God causes all things, all things, to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. Hey, the enemy can vote on the plan, on the call and the vision. When when Nehemiah left Susa, headed for Jerusalem, he didn't even know Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, existed. He had to improvise and overcome. Jesus. Jesus has a plan for you. Now, you, you, may not, you may not buy that yet. You, you might, but you, you might not. But, but remember, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. All roads lead to the cross. You see, God had a plan originally. The original plan was he created us to live in complete, open relationship with him and each other. That was, God, that was God's original plan. But, but because he created us for a love relationship, he, he gave us that thing called free will. He gave us a choice. You, you can't make somebody love you. you. You just can't. And so God gave us that, that choice and that free will. And with that choice and that free will, humanity chose to reject God. That, that's sin. That's rebellion. Is, is the rejection of God and his purposes for our lives. You and I, all, we are all spiritual heirs of that choice. But God causes all things to work together for good. God devised another plan. He, God improvised. And, and he overcame God, God sent his son. They call him Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever, 
Whoever believes in him will never die, but will have eternal life. Period. Hard stop. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that, you've never owned that personally, as a church family, we'd love to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to just to step into that relationship, to, to pray a prayer. And, and I will tell you, it, it's the best, but it's also the hardest prayer that you pray. Because ultimately, it's... Listen, I, nobody can intelligently argue whether or not Jesus died on the cross. That, that's a historical fact. You, that's beyond dispute. Now... The spiritual implications of his death and his resurrection, that's open for debate. We, we, can, we can discuss that. We can doubt that. We can debate that. But I, I, I don't think anyone, I just can't imagine anybody would be so arrogant as to say, because I can't explain that or I can't understand how that happened, then it can't be real. It can't be valid. I don't think anybody's really that arrogant. I think, I think what it really comes down to is the, the difficult decision to just, to just bow the knee, to, to humble ourselves. That's the challenge for me. It's to say, he's God and I'm not. I'm not going to even act like it. Just to, to bow the knee and to say, Jesus you're God and I'm not. And I choose to believe that you died on the cross and you rose again for me. And I accept it. I'll, I'll receive it and I'll, I'll follow you for the rest of forever with everything I've got on my knees. I want to ask you if you will bow your heads for just a moment. Just right where you are. If you've never taken that step of humility, that step of beginning, then we invite you to do it just right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. Just talk to God. Just silently. Just say, Jesus, I need you. Right here, right now. I'm bowing my knee spiritually to you. Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge that I have played God. But I thank you for the fact that you are God. And so I submit my life to you. I will follow you from this moment forward. I confess my sin. Jesus, I claim your forgiveness and I choose to believe that you died on the cross and that you rose again for me. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name.
If you would, I want to ask you to just remain in a spirit of prayer for another moment. If that was your prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life. And as a family, a church family, we, we welcome you. I want to ask you before you leave in just a second, if, if, the, if you would do a couple of things for us. Number one, take the connect card that's in your program and fill it out just right now. If that was your prayer, just fill out that card and about halfway down, you'll notice there's a place to indicate there, I committed my life to Christ today. After you've completed it, just tear it off at the perforation along the fold. And as you walk out in just a minute, just hand it to one of our ushers. Just, just make a brief moment for a personal connection. They'll just take it from you and shake your hand as you walk out the door. But that allows us as a church to be the church, to be the church with you. Second of all, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand just quietly? Our, hand, our heads are still bowed. Just raise your hand for a moment and hold it up high over your head because as you raise your hand, you, you physically represent the spiritual commitment that you just made. And as a family with you. We honor that and we, we celebrate that. That's why we ask you to privately raise your hand. You can go ahead and put your hands down. And as you do, we're going to put our hands together and just tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.